See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. You may see Father Scott back, but you're still stuck with me, so... Although I, I'm, I've been assured that he's got something in his pocket if I go off the rails, so I might get the hook and he'll come up here and finish off. So a trivial pastime of mine involves the 21st century Wikipedia phenomenon known as getting to philosophy. This pastime consists of clicking on the first link in a Wikipedia article that is outside of the parentheses repetitively until you land on the article Wikipedia has for the discipline of philosophy. If you've never done this, try it, but not right now during my sermon. Save it for your afternoon lounging on the couch. Now, as of 2016, it works for 97% of all articles on Wikipedia. That's a pretty good success rate, I think. You can try it on random articles, such as the article for Marmalade the article for socks, even the article for the band One Direction. If you stick with it and you click that first link, you do that enough times, eventually you'll get back to philosophy. So the implicit question here is simple. Does everything that we think about get back to philosophy? Well, I'm not so sure about that. But one thing is certain, 97% of all Wikipedia articles get back to philosophy. And philosophy is something that St. Paul mentions in today's passage from his letter to the church at Colossae. Philosophy is something that was much more of a popular subject to explore in the Mediterranean world during the first century, thanks to the Greeks and Romans, than it is today. Now, I am not a formally trained philosopher. I've studied it, and I've taught it at a low level. And I think I can make the case that for us today, philosophy still matters, and it plays a large part in our lives. Now, to be sure, most of us are not sitting around reading Plato and Aristotle and Immanuel Kant and David Hume, although we should. Uh, there are many deep thinkers that we should consider their words. But the act of thinking through the why of something and asking questions related to the purpose of things is what it means to do philosophy. And it's similar to theology. Many people who believe in God and want to say something about what they believe about God, they are quick to start their sentence off with something like this. Now, I'm not a theologian, but... Well, here's the truth. Once you start thinking and talking about God, guess what you're doing? You're doing theology. So the question isn't, are you a theologian or are you not a theologian? The question is whether you're any good at it. Now, you can go to seminary and get trained and get a degree, but that doesn't guarantee that you'll be good at theology. However, it is true that all people who think and talk about God are theologians. Now, within the Christian tradition, and you can think the past 2,000 years since Christ and his original 12 apostles, the two disciplines of theology and philosophy have had a close relationship. I did study theology for my undergraduate degree and for my master's degree. In order to study theology, I also had to study philosophy. 
The reason for this is that much of ancient Christian theology uses philosophical terms and practices to achieve its purposes. Uh, as an example, you, cannot, you can't have a, f- a full and robust understanding or even discussion about the mystery of the Holy Trinity without having some philosophical training. The definition of the Trinity is three persons in one being. The distinction between being and persons is of a philosophical nature. We don't think about that much today, but that is how it was developed in the fourth century. So as the saying goes, philosophy is the handmaid of theology. Prior to the rise of Christianity, philosophy would have been considered the queen of the disciplines. But with the advent of Christianity, theology became the queen of the disciplines. But again, to do good theology, you have to be able to handle philosophy. And not all the church fathers were unanimous in the benefit of pagan philosophy and using that and incorporating it into theology. Tertullian famously asked, what has Athens, representing pagan theology, to do with Jerusalem, representing the Christian faith? Now, I think it's a bit ironic that his question is one of a philosophical nature, but that's for another time. I think St. Paul understood the two are related, and I think he knew that they could be used in conjunction in order to better understand what we take on faith as Christians. We get a glimpse of him saying that in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. St. Paul uses the Greek term philosophias in this passage. It's the only time it's used in all of scripture. We rightly translate that word as philosophy. So let's put this verse another way. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now in this passage, St. Paul is encouraging Colossian believers to stand up to the pressure to turn away from Christ due to deceptive philosophy based on worldly principles. He isn't telling them not to engage it, nor is he telling them not to employ its techniques in order to better understand and explain the faith. That's exactly what he did on the Areopagus in Acts 17 when he debated Athenian philosophers. He used their discipline in order to demonstrate the supremacy of the God of the Jews and his son Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. To be sure, it didn't work so well for him that day as he hoped, but there were some who were intrigued by his arguments that day in Athens. And you see, St. Paul understood that all truth is God's truth. Therefore, if there is truth to be found in another religion or philosophy of life, it is still God's truth and can be used for God's purposes. However, there is a limit to this, and we'll get there in a few moments. Now, before I go any further, I want to highlight that this is the second time in today's passage that St. Paul encourages them about this. He begins chapter 2 talking about the struggle that he has for the Colossian believers, as well as the Laodicean believers— two churches that he didn't start and had not met face to face. He desires them to be united in love and to reach all the riches of understanding and knowledge of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, two things associated with philosophy. 
He then goes on to tell them he doesn't want them to be deluded with plausible arguments, or another way of saying it is don't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments, something that sounds good and true, but is ultimately neither good nor true. In our passage today, this deceptive and worldly philosophy would appear in at least two ways to them. First way, it would have been worshiping Jesus as one among many gods in the Roman pantheon. And the second way would have been a strict observance of the laws of the Torah. F.F. Bruce, a 20th century scholar, notes uh, what is known as the Colossian heresy that's found in, in the book of Colossians. And it's important to understand that many of St. Paul's letters to various churches were written for a specific purpose and usually occasioned by something that has taken place in the life of the church being addressed. In this case, it is a suspected heresy that has the potential to cause followers of Christ to turn away from him. New Testament scholar Robert Gundry notes the Colossian heresy then blends together Jewish legalism, Greek philosophic speculation, and Oriental mysticism. If you didn't get all of that out of today's New Testament reading, no, no judgment. You know, you got you to look closely, got to pay attention to a few things. Now, the clues for this in the text uh, mention things like the Sabbath and even mention angel worship. And those actually come a little bit later in chapter 2, just a few verses past our passage. Now, I think F.F. Bruce keenly explains the Colossian heresy in a helpful way. He describes it as Jewish Gnosticism. He relies on his understanding of first century Gnosticism in general and the 20th century authority on Jewish mysticism, a man named Gershom Sholem. And Jewish Gnosticism is what St. Paul is warning the Colossians about in our passage. That's the hollow and deceitful philosophy according to human tradition. So what are the characteristics of Jewish Gnosticism? Well, there would have been a strict observance of the laws of the Torah, and that included a form of mysticism which tempted its adherents to look on themselves as a spiritual elite. Gnosticism in general places an emphasis on the acquisition of esoteric knowledge by a select few, and that is the source of salvation for Gnostics. It's not open to everyone. You must be in the know to get it. And don't ask how you would know if you're in the know. You'll just know that. So a decent definition of Gnosticism is that it's a religious movement that proclaimed a mystical esotericism for the elect based on illumination and the acquisition of higher knowledge of things heavenly and divine. And when you get that knowledge, you attain to salvation. The Judaistic mystical side of this is fascinating. I don't have time to go into great detail. But briefly, it's based on the belief of attaining the vision of the heavenly chariot with God enthroned on it that's described in the calling of the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel found in chapter 1 of the book of Ezekiel. In order to gain that vision, a strict observance of the laws of the Torah was required as what was a period of asceticism, which are strict ways of self-denial. You can think of extreme fasting and things of that like. That self-denial is also a Gnostic feature. Now, this whole experience could be described as the ascent of the soul from the earth through the spheres of the hostile planet angels and rulers of the cosmos and its return to its divine home in the fullness of God's light. This return to the soul's divine home would have been seen as salvific for a first century Gnostic. 
now before we just completely dismiss all of this out of hand, we do need to remember that St. Paul himself had at least one mystical experience described in 2 Corinthians 12, where he was taken to the third heaven. And he paid dearly for that. God gave him a thorn in his flesh to keep him from becoming prideful in a spiritual way about the experience. So we would be in error to entirely rule out mystical experiences from the Christian faith. And we would be in error to overstate the importance of such mystical experiences and any heightened level of spirituality associated with them. There is a balance that needs to be maintained. Now, if that is what St. Paul was talking about 2,000 years ago, what in the world do we do with it today? If that is their context, how do we apply it to our context today? I don't think we're dealing with the same heresy that the Colossians were dealing with. So what is the truth for, for us from this passage? Well, I think we would be naive to think that even though we don't have the same view or understanding of angel worship or any sort of relationship to celestial bodies as those of St. Paul's time, that we're off the hook from this warning. There are those who still seek such ways. And plenty of people in our context are still held captive to believing that our personalities and fates are destined by the stars and months in which we were born. It wasn't that long ago that I can remember someone talking about another person saying, well, she's that way because she's a Pisces. Now, I don't know if you remember Miss Cleo, the television psychic who was ever ready to give us a reading for a small fee. She's no longer with us, but I'm sure someone will come along to take her place. But in all seriousness, though, I think there are other philosophies present today that are seen as plausible arguments, yet they are hollow and deceitful doing their work of leading many astray. One that I think poses a strong challenge to the church today is what is commonly known as progressive Christianity. And that's what I'm going to focus on this morning. Not that long ago, I was reading an article on the blog Juicy Ecumenism. How many, how many people in here know Juicy Ecumenism? Well done, well done. Okay. Juicy Ecumenism is the blog associated with the Institute on Religion and Democracy, a conservative think tank that counts our own Bishop John Guernsey as one of its board members. The blog is serious, yet humorous, as well as insightful and engaging as it focuses on the cultural issues of our day. I like to read the articles written by Jeff Walton, a friend and a member of Incarnation Anglican Church in South Arlington. He recently wrote an article about a young up-and-coming pastor on the social media site TikTok. Now, if you're not familiar with TikTok, find a teen here at church, and they'll teach you. It's kind of new, but not that new. If you're just hearing about it today, you've missed it. TikTok is the place to make short videos, think like 30 seconds to two minutes, and talk about whatever you want. You can dance to a song, or you can share bits of seemingly new information. You can find politicians, celebrities, ordinary people, and plenty of pastors on TikTok but you won't find me on TikTok, thanks be to God. <laughs> but back to this young pastor, and let's just call him Pastor T. I don't want to attack or demean him personally. He's not here to defend himself, and that wouldn't be appropriate. But I will share his perspectives in his own words and offer a critique of them. Pastor T is a graduate from Iliff Seminary in Denver. He's educated and has formal theological training. He is not dumb. 
I have no personal issue with him, but I do take issue with his theology and his teachings associated with it. And he has quite a large audience on TikTok. He has just under 200,000 followers, and his videos have amassed over 4 million likes. Plenty of people are listening to him. And he holds to progressive theology, which is characterized by several statements on the website that he runs. And he claims on this website most progressive Christians would agree with the statements. I think he's right. So here's a sample from those statements. First, our faith is primarily about following the teachings of Jesus. We believe that God's fundamental nature is love. We take the Bible seriously, but not always literally. We believe God speaks through other cultures, traditions, and religions. We believe that God's love will save, will save absolutely everyone in the end. We believe that no sexuality and gender identity is inherently sinful. We believe the worship God desires is that we do justice. We embrace ancient tradition while also listening for fresh direction from the Holy Spirit. We believe that history, science, and reason are gifts from God and are, and are authoritative sources of truth in God's revelation. We believe that certainty is the opposite of faith. We believe that it is in our diversity that we most reflect God's divinity. Now, I freely admit, I agree with some of these. I can agree that the Christian faith is primarily about following the teachings of Jesus. I can agree that God's fundamental nature is love. I can agree to take the Bible seriously, but not always literally. I can embrace the ancient tradition while also listening for fresh direction from the Holy Spirit. But there are others that just do not hold water. I cannot agree that God's love will save absolutely everyone in the end. I cannot agree that no sexuality and gender identity is inherently sinful. I cannot agree that history, science, and reason are authoritative sources of truth in God's revelation. And I cannot agree that certainty is the opposite of faith. But here's the thing. There is a way to express all of these statements so that they seem quite reasonable and acceptable. There is a way to frame them so that if you deny any of those statements, you are being narrow-minded, arrogant, and exclusive. But he's flat out wrong. Now, this is his theology in a nutshell. Jeff's article captured his statements from several of his teaching videos on TikTok, and those videos expand his theology. Just to mention, the title of Jeff's article is TikTok Pastor Declares Jesus Isn't the Only Way to Salvation. So let's explore this a little bit. Walton opens, Jesus isn't the only way to salvation, insists TikTok Pastor T., whose progressive preaching has reached millions. Pastor T's tutelage as a self-styled public theologian seems light years from evangelical Christianity. Jesus isn't the only way to salvation. Hell doesn't exist. And he doesn't know what happened after the crucifixion. He offers a reductionist message effectively whittled down to the golden rule. Christ's command to love your neighbor as yourself supersedes God's call to personal holiness and Jesus' repeated warnings about the reality of hell and the devil. I don't believe in hell, yet I choose to follow Jesus because I know it blesses my life and the world around me, shared Pastor T in a March 15th TikTok video. Now quickly, 
Go back to one of the claims about progressive Christianity on his Christianity on his website. Certainty is the opposite of faith. How certain is he that hell doesn't exist? How long will those blessings follow? Will those blessings be with him this side of eternity? How certain is he that following Jesus blesses his life in the world around him? Furthermore, would he choose to still follow Jesus if he didn't receive any blessings? In that sentence about following Jesus, he mentions himself five times, yet only mentions Jesus once. Who is this about? You remember that statement about from progressive Christianity uh, that it embraces the ancient tradition while listening for fresh direction from the Holy Spirit? Well, when asked by a viewer if he needs to go to church, believe a creed, or partake in a sacrament to be saved, Pastor T replied in a video that the answer is very deep. The answer is no. Now, I missed several things. I'll quickly say I'm not the smartest guy in the room. But in Christianity, the ancient tradition, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, it includes going to church, confessing the creeds, and partaking in many sacraments, all for the purpose of salvation, and nothing less than that. I find great irony in this point because he claims on his website that the Eastern Orthodox Church is a contributor to progressive Christianity. But I can tell you for sure that if you talk with an Orthodox theologian, priest, or bishop, and you tell them that you don't have to show up for church, confess the creeds, or partake in sacraments in order to receive salvation, you're in for a very rude awakening. Writing in the third century, St. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, declared that, quote, outside of the church, there is no salvation. Square that with Pastor T's deep answer of no, if you can. The ancient, the ancient tradition will tell you quite clearly the church is the means by which God is accomplishing his plan of salvation. All Saints Church has a great affinity for the song, Build Your Kingdom Here. And in that song, we declare, we are the church and we are the hope on earth. And what are we to make of history, science, and reason being the authoritative sources of truth in God's revelation? Where is scripture in that formula? Is Jesus the revelation of God to humanity? Is the church a source of authority for Pastor T? I'll be teaching on sources of authority for Anglicans this Wednesday evening in our confirmation and membership course. I would love to extend an invitation to him. And I could continue to line by line question and refute this way of thinking, this way of believing, this philosophy, but my time is up. So I'll wrap up with a few final thoughts. First, I wish I could say that this pastor probably never knew or heard the truth or engaged the gospel of Jesus, but I don't think that would be accurate. You see, he was once a parishioner of an ACNA congregation that was part of the Chicago-based greenhouse church planning movement. He came from the ACNA. He's heard the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sadly, something else has taken him captive. In 2015, Pastor T identified as an evangelical. Later, he would claim the label Christianish. In 2018, he used the title Renegade Reverend Rethinking Sin as a Minister of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, well, today he calls himself a Christian agnostic. 
He claims, I don't know the absolute truth about the nature or reality of our universe. What I believe today might be different than what I believe a year from now. He sums up his Christian agnosticism by claiming that, quote, Jesus is my cornerstone. In him, I find the most meaning and rhythm. For my life, the most direction. I stand in humble, reverent awe at the bigness, the beauty, the mystery, and the majesty of the universe, admitting I don't know, you don't know, we can't know, all we can do is be amazed. He's exchanged his lens of trust for a lens of skepticism. And as it stands, there is nothing he can know except that. And I imagine he would be quite certain that the same goes for us, his certainty being the exception to his own rule regarding being certain about things. Second, for many of you here, this way, this philosophy will have no effect on you. You've thought through things. You have prayed through things. And you have processed through things. You know Jesus Christ and will stand firm in your belief. To you, I say, well done and God bless you. But I also say, share that firm belief gently and respectfully with others. There are many who need strong, humble, and mature believers to teach them, to pray with them, to walk alongside them, and to bring them up in the faith. You are needed now more than ever. Join in contending for the faith. And finally, while a side of me wants to despair, maybe even get angry and think that all is lost for these younger generations watching and learning from this pastor, another side of me rejoices for a few reasons. A few days ago, I shared one of his videos, that video about being a Christian agnostic. I shared that with some of the older teens in our youth group. And they had none of what this pastor was peddling. I got responses telling me where he needs to place his trust in God and scripture and in Jesus, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so that he could know the one who knows all things and not only have to be in reverent awe of the universe, but he could be in reverent awe of the God of the universe. I got responses full of scripture reminding me that Jesus declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. My heart was full of joy that they had not been taken captive. I think they're quite ready to answer this pastor's claims. I also rejoice because we are the church. We are the hope of earth. And this false teaching will not have its final say. As long as God's people are in this world, there is hope. And the truth of the saving work of Jesus will be proclaimed. So how do we rebut this teaching? Simple. Keep doing what we do. We stay focused on Jesus Christ in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. We continue to pursue the true, the good, and the beautiful. We come to church. We confess the creeds. We partake in the sacraments for the salvation of our souls. In short, we keep the faith. Here's your philosophy lesson for the day, and this is a freebie. We become what we consume. So set your mind on that mystery, and in a few moments, come forward in faith to consume the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and follow him. He will have his way in all things because he is the Lord of all things, to the praise of his glorious name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.